Would you open up your Bibles to the book of Luke? If you would, take your copy of God's Word. I'm sorry, I put, uh, I mean Matthew, not Luke. Open your Bibles up to the 13th chapter of the book of Matthew. My screen's a little all over the place today without Stelisa here. We're going to do the best that we can. I self-distracted. We, last week, looked at a great principle. The principle that what we believe, what we do, is to be determined by the Bible alone. Scripture alone. Now, it's interesting, when you look at the history of Christianity, as I pointed out to you before, Jesus established his church when he was first on the seashores of Galilee, called out his believers. He told Matthew, on this rock I'll build my church. He told Peter, in the, according to Matthew, on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He assured that his church would never fail. There would always be churches. There would always be local groups of baptized believers coming together to carry out his work. But as we know from a historical perspective, there were times where Christians were successful and out in front, and there were times where Christians were pushed into the shadows. We have some examples of that today, don't we? Uh, if you look in China, uh, they've, they've made some relaxations recently. But historically in China, being a Christian was a very dangerous thing to be. And in fact, they were forced to meet in houses. But there are more Christians in China than there are in the United States. You know, they were forced to live in hiding, but being forced into hiding made them take their faith a whole lot more seriously than we do a lot of the time. I was listening to somebody the other day that was saying they had a friend who was looking for a church. You know, they visited this church, and they just the music wasn't right for them, and they visited this church, you know, it just didn't feel right, and they visited this church, and it was too far. And all I could think about was, can you imagine somebody in North Korea saying, you know, I crawled here in the dead of night to come and visit this church, and it's just not right for me. You know, I think I'm going to crawl and risk my life to find a different church instead, you know, one that fits my preferences a little bit better. Can you imagine in the first century when Jesus was, had gone into heaven and the disciples have been exiled from their families, from their nations, from their jobs, from everything? Can you imagine them saying, you know, Peter's a pretty good preacher, but I just... You know, I just don't feel at home there. Let me go try to find another church in a different town. And I'm going to try to avoid getting captured and forced to fight with lions in Nero's arena in the meantime. You know, we are so soft, aren't we? The only time that Christians have time to fight with each other is when they forgot to fight not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. The only time that we have the opportunity, the only time that we can be dumb enough to bicker amongst ourselves is when we've lost the sense of what's really going on. We are so spoiled, and I don't know how much time we spend thinking about it, but being spoiled is not good for you. You know, <laughs> a, a parent that spoils their child is not, good to, is not a good parent, right? A parent that spoils their child is a bad parent. <laughs> their kids may like them a lot, but they're a bad parent. They're ruining that child. We, when we get spoiled, we get ruined for what really matters. So throughout history, there have been Christians who were forced to live in the shadows based on the country they were in, based on what happened, based on, on different things. I told you uh, last week how for the crime of believing that you ought to have the Bible in your own language, uh, 
William Tyndale was taken by the, uh, by the official forces of the Roman Catholic Church, strangled to death, and his body was burned at the stake. He, because he fought for what he believed in, it mattered a lot to him. We've got Bibles. And remember, I, I told you something like 80% of the King James Version is actually just Tyndale's version copied in the New Testament. We've got Bibles that somebody was killed, was murdered, so you could have, and what do we do with them? We leave it over here. We read it and don't believe it. Are we, you know, once the Bible came into people's languages, though, once William Tyndale successfully got the Bible into English, suddenly the chokehold broke. When people were able to read the Bible for themselves, starting in about the 1600s, the small number of people who followed biblical doctrine exploded. Because when people could read the Bible for themselves and they didn't have to have somebody else explain it to them, suddenly things they had heard their whole lives didn't make any sense anymore. When you've grown up, your whole life being told, taught about, I'm going to use a, a, the example of a, the doctrine of purgatory. Okay? You've heard that, okay, you have to be good, and if you're not good enough, you go to purgatory and burn off your sins. There was a during the time of the early the 1617 or sorry 1517 thereabouts, the uh, there was a huge focus on indulgences. The uh, Roman Empire had spent a bunch of money in the Crusades; they needed to make the money back up, and so they started publishing these charts that said, if you say this many prayers, you can get this much time off of purgatory. If you can give this much money, you can get this much time off of purgatory. So by donating to the war effort, you would be able to reduce your time in suffering. Now, people at that time, when you don't have the Bible, it's illegal for you to have the Bible. Remember I told you that they burned Bibles in the courtyards of churches in the 1500s? When you didn't have your own Bible, you just had to believe what you were told. But then, when William Tyndale and others start to translate the Bible into English... English-speaking people can start to read and say, you know, that doesn't make any sense at all. There was one man who was a famous, uh, uh, not a, he was a famous speaker who went from town to town uh, raising money, and he raised more money than anybody else through the sale of indulgences. And um, he had a little expression. He said, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Now, you understand, this is big business, it's big power, it's lots of money, it's lots of power, it's lots of success. It makes a lot of sense now, doesn't it, why they didn't want to get the Bible into people's hands. But once they did, there was kind of a list that was made of these five things that were, these five things alone that were discovered, or were not discovered, they were always Christians, but that were republicized once people had access to the Bible. The first one was scripture alone, the Bible alone. The next one was faith alone. You're not saved by works, you're saved by faith. The next one was um, Christ alone. The only way to be saved is through Jesus, Christ alone. The fourth one was grace alone. It's not, it's not that your faith earns something from God, it's only by God's grace. The fifth one is to the glory of God alone. That's what we're really working through over the next several weeks. We saw scripture alone, and today I want to talk to you about this doctrine of faith alone. What makes a person right with God? 
You know, maybe that's something that seems kind of old hat to us because we already know the answer. But I just want you to step back for a second and realize that on our own, we are at war with God, sinners, you know, angry with God. On our own, we have no basis for a relationship with God. So what does it take for a man to be right with God? Do we have to do more good things than bad things and cancel out? No. <laughs> You have to be born into the right family. You have to give enough money toward the indulgent sales. No. What is it? It's faith alone. I read this awesome quote from a man named Francis Churton who lived in the 1500s, if it will work. If it won't work, I still read it, uh, but you won't. He says, But when we rise to the heavenly tribunal and place before our eyes that supreme judge by whose brightness the stars are darkened, at whose strength the mountains melt, by whose anger the earth is shaken, whose justice not even the angels are equal to bear, who does not make the guilty innocent, whose vengeance when once kindled penetrates even the lowest depths of hell. Then, in an instant, the vain confidence of men perishes and falls, and conscience is compelled to confess that it has nothing upon which it can rely before God. And so it cries out with David, Lord, if thou marked iniquity, who can stand? When the mind is thoroughly terrified with the consciousness of sin and a sense of God's wrath, what is that thing on which he shall be acquitted before God and be reckoned a righteous person? Is it righteousness inhering in us? Or holiness or the righteousness and obedience of Christ alone imputed to us? When you stand before God, the one from whose face the heaven and the earth fled, the one from who the angels tremble to look at, they cover their faces in front of him when they cry, holy, holy, holy. When you stand before God, what defense can you have? If your defense is your righteousness, then you're going to find it burned up in an instant. Say, well, I did the very best I could. I tried to be good. Your sin exposed before God, everything you've ever done, everything you've ever thought laid out there, there's no defense that you can have for that. The only defense that you can have is the righteousness of Jesus put on you. The only thing that will matter in that day is for you to be able to stand and say, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. The only thing that matters is our faith. You can't do anything for God. The only thing you can do is believe that God has already done it for you. Faith alone. But I want to tell you, you need to be careful how you believe. Do you know the Bible says that uh, so you believe that God's one, the demons also believe and tremble. So if you think that you can pat yourself on the back for believing there is a God... Uh, James says, the brother of Jesus, even the demons believe there is a God. There's faith that works. And then there's faith that's really no faith at all. So, look with me, if you would, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 1. It says, The same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the seaside, and great multitudes were gathered together unto him, so that he went into a ship and sat and the whole multitude stood on the shore. And he spake many things unto them in parables, saying... So you know, imagine the scene. Jesus has come out. Jesus is 
Uh, there's a big crowd, so to get to a better vantage point, he gets on a boat, and he takes the boat a little bit away from the shore. The boat's lifted up a little bit, so it's like a stage. It's a, a kind of the shoreline makes an, a theater for him to speak to. You imagine all these people craning in to listen to Jesus speak, and he starts to tell them a story. He says, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. And when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But others fell into the good ground and bought forth fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus tells a simple story. It would be, you know, it's, kind of, it's not a simple story to us because we're not familiar with sowing. You know, we don't go out and sow seeds. But the basics of it are pretty clear. In their culture, everybody knew about farming, right? Everybody knew you went out and you would sow seeds. We've got uh, big industrial farms and do these different things. But here, a farmer would have some territory, a certain land that was his, and he would just go and he'd just scatter seed in it. It says some of the seed fell on the road, the wayside. Way means road. Some of the seed fell on the side of the road. That seed never had any chance. It landed, it popped, and the birds came down and ate it up. It says some of the seed fell on the rocky soil. Now, we don't know anything about rocky soil because we live in Brazoria County. But if you go to Israel, there are places where it seems like there's soil, and if you kick your foot, there's rock right underneath it. There's no place for any roots to go. So it says the seed that landed in the rocky soil, it seemed like it grew. It popped up, and then because it had no depth of earth, when the sun came out, it withered up and died. There's no, no real life there. He said some of it fell among the thorns. The thorns, you know, they soaked away the nutrients. They sucked it up. They choked out the seed. And so there was no success there either. He says, oh, but some fell on the good ground. And the ones that fell on the good ground, some of it produced fruit a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Now you, you know, you kind of step back there and you imagine one tomato seed giving you a hundred tomatoes. You know, that's a hundredfold fruit. <laughs> that some of them, it's an incredible abundance. When there's life, there's fruit, is what Jesus is saying here. That's a fairly simple story. You got it set in your mind. But if you were one of the people on the seashore, or maybe if you've never heard this parable before, you say, Jesus, what are you talking about? Like, that's nice. Yes, remind me to always throw my seed on good soil. But what does that have to do with anything? Look in verse 10. And the disciples came and said unto, them, unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? He said, they say to Jesus, Why do you keep telling these weird little stories? Why don't you just come out and say it? Why, do you, why are you speaking to them in parables? And Jesus gives an answer that's kind of mind-blowing for us. He says, He answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it is not given. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away even that he hath. Therefore speak I to them in parables, 
Because they seeing, see not, and hearing, they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which says, By hearing you shall hear and shall not understand, and seeing you shall see and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. Jesus says, I tell parables because they don't, the people that I'm telling the parables to, the multitudes, don't understand. He says, I'm telling parables not to tell stories to make it easier for them to understand something. He says, I'm telling them parables because it's not their time to understand. Now, that's really strange, isn't it? Why would Jesus say that? He quotes Isaiah, where Isaiah's told he's going to go preach, and God says, but I'm going to keep them from understanding because they're not going to repent. They're not going to stop this judgment. The amazing thing about a story is that a story will stick with you. Have you ever heard a story and it just kind of like lodged itself in your mind somewhere? And you can carry that story around for a long time and not understand it. But then, one day, it's like a landmine or it's like a time bomb blowing off inside of you. There are things that, uh, you know, a silly example, um, people always tell you, you know, when you getting ready to have a baby and everything, they tell you how fast the baby grows up. I said, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm sure that it goes by really fast. And it's just kind of there, right? Okay. But now, I've got a little 11-month-old and it feels like I never had a baby. It feels like she was just gone, you know? And all those things that people said before, all the stories and stuff people told me about it, they suddenly make sense, right? There's suddenly this kind of an, an explosion, <laughs> Jesus says, I'm telling them parables because I've not yet given them the ability to understand. Can you imagine if you were one of the disciples, uh, sorry, not one of the disciples, one of the people that was there when Jesus gave this sermon and you listened in and you just didn't get it. And you go and you're at Jerusalem and then a couple Passovers later and you're there and you're yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus dies and he rises again and you see him risen again or you hear how he's risen again and suddenly there's this little explosion in your heart and the stories that didn't make any sense to you before suddenly they snap into place I wonder if that's ever happened to you with the Bible there's ever been a Bible verse or something that you knew about and it never really made sense to you until something happened in your life and then suddenly it was there Jesus knew that these people could not understand yet because he still had to be crucified. You know, he can't. He said, these people are, some of them are just going to be sealed further and further in their rebellion against me. You know, if they want to rebel against me, I'm going to let them. Some of them will believe later and these parables are going to stick onto their fat hearts and slowly burrow their way through. Parables are funny like that. You know, the most, probably the, other than the parables of Jesus, the greatest parable in the Bible was the parable that Nathan told. You remember the story? 
Um, Nathan went up to King David and said, King David, I need your help. He said, there is a man in your territory who's a wealthy man. He's got lots of sheep. He's got everything that he needs. And he's got a neighbor, and his neighbor has one sheep, and they keep it as a pet. It eats at the table with him. But the wealthy man had somebody come into town, a visitor, and he went and stole the neighbor's pet sheep and slaughtered it to feed it to his neighbor. And David gets so angry. He says, who was this man? You need to bring him to me. They need to die. And the Bible says Nathan pointed his finger at David and said, David, you are the man. And suddenly this story that didn't make any sense to David suddenly clicks. David, the king of Israel, he's got everything that he wants. But he had just taken Uriah's wife and had Uriah killed so that he could marry Bathsheba. <laughs> when David was thinking about it in his own terms, he thought, you know, that makes a lot of sense. I'm the king. I should get what I want. There's a, I see somebody and I want her. Bring her to me. <laughs> but when he hears the story of somebody who has everything, and is still not satisfied and destroys everybody else in his path to get it. Suddenly, he can see himself in the story more clearly than he can see himself head on. I wonder how many of us, there are things in our life that we justify that if we heard it explained in a story that was about somebody else, we'd be furious with us. Are you the kind of person who God has given great things to, but when you see something else that you think you deserve, something else that you think you want, you go on a rampage and don't care who gets hurt in the middle? I'm getting a little off topic. But Jesus tells these parables because these people do not yet have faith. He says, when they have faith, when they're genuinely saved, they're going to hear and understand. He says right now they hear, but they don't hear. Right now they think about it, but they don't understand it. Right now they see it, but they don't see it. He says until faith comes and gives it spark. That's going to be important in just a second. He says, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For verily I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which you see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which you hear and have not heard them. Hear ye therefore the parable of the sower. You see what he means when he says hear? He says, you are given the ability now through the Spirit of God within you to hear and really understand. You heard the parable of the sower before. He says, but now it's time for you to understand it. So look here. He says, When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which received seed by the wayside. He says, Some people receive the message, the seed falls on the path, and it never sinks in. They don't understand, it never, never gets past the surface. And so it's there for Satan to come and pick up. Where does that come from? Well, I quoted to you uh, just a second ago from the book of James, but uh, I suppose that it would not hurt to go to James chapter 2 to show you. You may even want to write that in the margin of your Bible next to this section. In fact, you may want to, as you're here, 
keep your finger in James 2 because we're going to be back in James 2 in just a second. Look here in James 2 when he's talking about this kind of faith, this kind of faith that is no faith at all. Trying to get this to work, but it sure does not want to. James 2.19, in any case. Thou believest that there is one God. Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. If in your head you believe in God, then you are no better off than the demons that believe, and all their knowledge of God does is brings them to fear. That's the seed that falls by the wayside. You know, they've heard the message of who Jesus is, but it doesn't do anything. They understand who Jesus is, but it amounts to nothing in them. Look back then for his next one. Maybe some of you here today are like that. I ought to say before we leave. You know the mind, you know about the message of Jesus. But that's all. You, know, you say, I believe in God. You believe in God. If you don't believe in God any more than the demons believe in God, then you can't think that when I say you're made right with God, you're saved by faith alone. Don't think that's the kind of faith that we're talking about. That's not faith. That's head knowledge. That's the seed by the wayside. All it did is it fell on your hard head and then Satan picked it back off. <laughs> Look at the next one. He said, But he that received the seed into stony places, the same is he that heareth the word and anon with joy receiveth it. Yet hath he not root in himself, but dureth for a while. For when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by he is offended. Did you catch that? He said, there are some people that seem to receive the word. They make a profession of faith. They say, I'm a Christian now. And it shoots up. But there's no depth to it. It never has any root in them. It's, they may, you, you sometimes see people who are extremely active, extremely excited, extremely, you know, it seems like, wow, God's really made a change in their life until the first time there's some kind of obstacle and you find out that it never had any root in their heart, that they were never saved. I think there are a lot of people, and I'm going to, I don't know how to say it except to say it. I think there are a lot of people who are Christians who are not Christians, who are on church rolls because they had a superficial experience. They had no depth. It had no root in them. They made a profession. They seemed to do a lot for a little while, and they fell away. And instead of praying for those people to stop backsliding, we need to pray for those people to get saved in the first place. You may not like that. I don't like that. But what does it say? It says, he has no root in himself. He endures for a little while, but when tribulation or persecution ariseth because the word, by and by he's offended. He received the word, he heard the word, and with joy he received it, but he had no root. I'm afraid that I know a lot of professing Christians that make a profession of faith but have no root. It never really sank in. They never really knew God. 
1 Corinthians 15 is where it talks about that. We saw a demonic faith is the faith that falls by the roadside. Vain faith is 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Moreover, brethren, 1 Corinthians 15, 1, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, where also you which also you have received and wherein you stand, by which you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. He said, I came and I preached to you in vain means superficially. It means lightly, like smoke. He said, I preached the gospel to you and that gospel you received and you stand in it, you're saved by it. Unless the faith that you had was not real faith, unless you had no root in yourself, unless it was vain. He said, for I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. What is the message that we have faith in that changes us? It's the belief that Jesus died and was buried and rose again. But you better not believe in vain. So there's some people who receive, who hear the word of God, and it lands on them rock hard. It never sinks in. All they've ever got is a demonic faith, the same kind of faith the demons have. Oh, I believe in God with my head. Some people have got a so-called faith that hits the rock-hard heart underneath it. You know, it goes back to the quote he gave in Isaiah. It lands on the surface, but their heart's rock-hard. It never really makes a change. They get really excited. Oh, I love Jesus. But the first time something gets hard, you find out there was never any real life there. And you may want to believe that those people are really saved, but I just, the Bible says that they're not. The next one. Verse 22. He also that received seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word. And the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becometh unfruitful. There's some here that receive the word, but it's choked out. They're not the kind of people who make a big superficial display and then it's nothing. These people may seem to endure for a little bit longer. They may show up to church every day or every week for years. It says, but they, there's never any nutrition there. Because their heart is really consumed with the care of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and it chokes out the word, and God never really has their heart. Look back in James 2 for that explained to you. You can actually just pick up where we left off before. He says, you believe that God is one. Hip, hip, hooray for you. It says, Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Look down in verse 26. That's really the verse that I have you put in your notes if you'd like. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. What does that mean? You ever been to a funeral? Seen a dead person? It looks like they're there. 
but it's just an illusion. You even sometimes, I don't know if you've ever done this, uh, sometimes you go to a funeral or a, fu a viewing and you look at the person in the casket and you start to like talk yourself into, is, are they breathing? You know, is their chest moving? There's no life there. We are saved by faith alone. You're not saved by your works. Nothing you do gives you a right relationship with God. But if the faith that you claim to have never shows itself in works, the Bible says that's no faith at all. Real faith is trust in God alone. But the faith that saves us alone is never alone. He says, if you receive the word and it's choked out and you're unfruitful, then you're not the one that understands. You're not the one that's really saved. You're not the one that's really changed. There may be an appearance like a body looks like a person. So, but it's not. I talked to uh, one of my pastor friends about this passage. I said, you know, what do you do with this? Uh, I said, it's really clear when you look at it in context that only the last group of people is saved. And I'll show that to you in a minute. I'll explain it to you in a minute. And he said, yeah, but I really wish that weren't true because most of the Christians that I know seem to fall in the first three categories. It is very heavy to think about. But I think about the words of Jesus where he said, in that day many will say unto me, Lord, Lord, did we not do many marvelous works and cast out many demons in thy name? And Jesus says, and I will say unto them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. Lots of people will do a lot of things. And Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. You never knew me. You knew a lot about me. You put on a show, but you never had real faith. You never had real soul trust in me. You never gave me your heart. That's what faith is. You know, we talk about trust falls and different things, and that's what it is. It's when you say, God, I give myself to you completely. <laughs> if I hold back, can I really say that I've got faith? Let me show you this next part. He says, He also that receiveth seed unto the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, which also beareth fruit, and bringeth forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Who are the disciples, according to the quotation in Isaiah? They're the ones that hear the word and understand it. So who are the saved? The ones that fall on the good soil. How do you recognize them? Because they bear fruit. Some of them bear a whole lot of fruit, you know, some a hundred times, you know, some less fruit, some 60, some 30, you know, maybe not a whole lot. But they're alive until they bear fruit. Real faith always has a multiplicative effect. Real faith always causes a change. Turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. I make this as clear as I possibly can.
He says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. He said, You're saved by faith through God's grace, God's free gift. Not anything that you do, not anything that you earn. You are saved simply by grace. You're saved because if I were saved by works, you know, if I did more good stuff than you did, then I could go to heaven and I could pat myself on the back and say, you know, look at me. I'm really, boy, I'm Mr. Greatness. But in heaven, there's only one person who's going to be praised, and that's going to be God. Yeah. It's all about God. It's all God's the one who did it all. All you did was accept what God already bought for you. You know, if I, uh, if somebody gives me a present, and they pay for it, and they pay for it dearly. Let's say that out of the goodness of his heart, this is a true story, uh, Angel goes tomorrow and buys me some World Series tickets. And I knew you would. And he spends the $6,000 or whatever it's going to take. I looked up last night, $1,500 a person for standing room only tickets at this point. Um, but Angel's got it. You know, he's a, one of the best teachers Brunswick College has. He's just go, he scoops it all up. He says, here, I got you some tickets to the world series. And then I came and I said, look at me. Look how great I am. I will manage to go and get myself some tickets to the world series. Well, that's pretty dumb, isn't it? Because I didn't do anything to deserve them. I didn't pay for them. He did. He earned them and he gave them to me. If. In contrast, if he gave them to me, he paid for them, he said, man, I worked extra tutoring jobs, I worked around the clock so I could get enough money so I could give this to you. And he gives it to me and I said, oh, thanks. And I put them in my desk and don't go. Whose fault is that? That's my fault. You know. So if I receive it, it's a gift and it has nothing to do with me. If I don't receive it, that doesn't change the fact that I'm not earning it either way. It just means that I'm refusing to use the gift that's been given to me. Jesus died and was buried and rose again, died in your place so that you could be forgiven, so you can have eternal life. He gives it to you freely. You can't pat yourself on the back and say, look at me, look, I got these great tickets to heaven. But if you refuse to use them, you refuse to take them and say, yes, Lord, I take your free gift of salvation. And what do we say? We say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And you come to the place in your heart where you say, Lord, I trust you and you alone. I know I'm a sinner, but I believe you died to save me. That's using the ticket that he bought for you. You don't earn it, you don't do it by work. But faith is a little different. Faith is alive. The Bible says, if any man's in Christ, in 2 Corinthians 5, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. If you claim to be a new creature and there's no fruit, there's no evidence, then why would I believe that you're a new creature? If I said that right now I've got 45 pounds of dog food in my right pocket, do you believe that I have 45 pounds of dog food in my right pocket? No. Because if I did, you'd be able to tell. 
If I say, I have the living God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the one who spoke and the world was, inside my heart, you'd be able to see. Not perfectly, not all the time. Some bear 60, some bear 30, some bear 100. But, he says, in real life, faith without works is not real faith. And again, I want to be so crystal clear. It's not that our faith... It's not that works cause faith, or that works do this. It's that real faith, faith alone that saves us, always, all, later on, causes works too. And so if your faith is just head faith, Satan's going to come and eat it up before you get home today. If your faith is superficial professor faith, whoa, look at me, oh, Jesus, and then it's gone. I read somewhere that somebody said that if you're, uh, if the Holy Spirit inside of you makes you, uh, Shout and sing, but doesn't help you to follow Jesus. It's not the Holy Spirit in ADHD, right? <laughs> it's a superficial faith. He said, if you're choked out, if God doesn't really have your heart, if your pride and your greed and your cares of this world choke it out where God's never really in you, that's not real faith. There's no fruit there. But if you say, Lord, I give all of me to all of you, then God says, I'm going to do all the work. Do you know how you live the Christian life? You don't, right? God doesn't. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We're saved by faith alone. Sola fide. What? You need some Latin in your life, didn't you? So let me finish this passage in Ephesians 2, and then we'll be done. He says, Not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship. Who's the one that does the work? Jesus. The word workmanship is the, the Greek word poema. Don't let that fool you. Sometimes sloppy preachers will say it means we're God's poetry. You hit him in the back of the head. That's not right. Poema is the Greek word for craftsmanship. So if I were a carpenter and I made the most beautiful mantelpiece you'd ever seen, that would be my poema. That would be my craftsmanship. If I were a piano maker and I made the most beautiful grand piano you'd ever seen, that would be my masterpiece. Da Vinci's poema was a Mona Lisa, right? The Bible says we are God's workmanship. We're his craftsmanship. We're the thing that he's done all the work on. He's carved it. He's made it. Created in Christ Jesus. That's how we're made. Right? You, you accept Jesus, and when you accept Jesus as a free offer of salvation, you place your faith in him, God transforms you into his creation of masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works. You say, well, wait a minute. I thought it wasn't about work. Well, here's what it's for. God made you not by works, but for works. God didn't save you so you could sit and hold a few down. You know? God didn't save you so you could tell all your friends how holy you were. You know, God, God didn't save you for that. You've heard the story about the, uh, the church that had the uh, rat problem, and they just could not figure out. They couldn't poison them, they couldn't trap them, they couldn't figure out what to do. So finally, the one today, the pastor figured out what to do. Uh, they voted them all in, baptized them, and never saw them again. <laughs> God didn't save you to be superficial. God saved you to do something. So you receive the Spirit of God just by trusting. And then the life of the Spirit of God lives 
God does that for good works. Which God hath before ordained that we should walk in. God made good works for you to do before he made the world. He said, one day, Brother so-and-so is going to come along, and I've got this job for him, and this job for him, and this job for him, and boy, they're really going to glorify me with this one. That means it's not your planning, it's not your strength, it's not your wisdom, it's not your choice exactly. I mean, it's you do. You decide if you're going to be obedient or not. But it's not you coming up with the best plan. It's God putting you in the place where he wants you to do what he wants you to do. It's you trusting God. And if I trust God, I'm going to go wherever he takes me. And if I'm going to go wherever he takes me, Somewhere, uh, I don't know if you've ever been to a Renaissance Festival or something and seen them blowing glass and you know, stuff like that. It's just, it's just amazing to me to watch some of the skills that people have. I, you know, if I can see something that can color inside the lines, I think, wow. <laughs> so it doesn't take a whole lot to impress me artistically. But doing these glass blowing or sculpture or painting or whatever, you just say, wow. Isn't it exciting to be here watching a master do his work? God says, if you will trust me, if you'll realize there's nothing that you can do that is all faith alone, and you'll just trust me, then I'll do great things in response to your faith through you. So my question today then for you is, are you fruitful? Are you bearing fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100? 